reading tonight is Matthew 20, um, 1 to 15, which is on page 697. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. When the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came, and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered them, one of them, Friends, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give to the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. Green light means go. Uh, thanks for welcoming me here tonight. Thank you for all the people who met me uh, early in the evening and gave me a cup of tea and showed me around and prayed. That's terrific. Very encouraged to see people at church so early. Um, I'm astonished by it, actually. It's pretty unusual at our church for people to arrive within five minutes after starting time. Uh, so it's hugely encouraging to see people here praying and preparing to serve in that way. Uh, my name is Jim Crosweller. I'm f- from Maroubra. Uh, run an Anglican church uh, there, and uh, for most important reference point tonight is I'm a mate of Paul's, and uh, it's great to be able to come here tonight and uh, look after him and to share the word with you guys. Uh, Paul and I go back to about 1997, I think, when he came as an exchange student um, from the UK, and we took pity on him uh, at Moore College at the time. Uh, we would gather every Monday night in the front room of a little house on Queen Street in a tiny Victorian terrace to watch 
the Monday Night Magazine show of the English Premier League. And he was English, so he assumed he would love to do that. And he pretended for a year that he would love to do that. And so we became friends and subsequently found out that he doesn't really care that much for football in the end after all. But he does like a good time. That's what we learned. Uh, let's pray and we'll get into scriptures. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. And uh, we've shared many words tonight and we thank you for the encouragement of them. Uh, but this word is like no other. None of us are your son or the Lord of all things. And yet he spoke and we get to hear it. What could be more important, more critical than that? And so, Father, we ask that you'd give us the ears to hear and even more the hearts to obey. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight's reading really is sort of half a reading, in fact. If you've got your Bibles open, I really encourage you to do that. Uh, you'll find that the story of Matthew 20, this parable of workers in a vineyard, is really a companion piece to an incident that's just gone before it. Um, it's a story that Jesus tells to answer something that Peter says because he's observed Jesus with a young, rich man. Now, I only need to say the words young rich man, you think, yeah, I know the story. That's good. That's why we didn't read it as well. Uh, what you may not have noticed um, is a particular phrase that pops up twice in these stories, and you will know pops up again and again from the mouth of Jesus. And the phrase is this, many who are first will be last, and those who are last will be first. One of the more disturbing and troubling things that Jesus says unless you think of yourself as last, in which case it's one of those wonderful things that Jesus says. The problem here is I'm confused by it at the best of times. I have extra problems tonight. Have a look at chapter 19, verse 30. It says, many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. And then chapter 20, verse 16, it reappears, so the last will be first, and the first will be last, which I know... It's kind of a reversal, and I know it's already reversing, so it's now double reversing, which is like a double negative, I guess. And I don't know whether everyone's now in their right place, and the first coming first, and the last. I'm thoroughly confused. Uh, my only hope to understand this really disturbing phrase, or very comforting phrase, is to work out the stories around it. And uh, I hope uh, that we'll be able to do that now and understand something about the nature of God's grace and the kingdom of God. Well, I went and uh, visited Nathaniel this week, that little gift of God, and uh, I was lucky enough to go at a time when there weren't many people around, and I got to go into NICU and uh, see Paul and Rach, uh, who looked great, and see Nate, who looked great. Well, kind of looked great. Um, uh, I couldn't see much of him because his face was obscured. I saw the, the uh, rear of his head much more than the front of his head, he was a little bit jaundiced, so he was under UV lights and he had a little kind of thing over his eyes like that with sunglasses painted on it, which is meant to look cute, but just looks kind of weird, really. So I was quite taken by the back of his head. I'm in a NICU, which is full of the marvels of medical science, and there's enough going on in there to make you stop and wonder at everything there is. Uh, I 
somewhat pathetically found the most marvelous thing in there, his mullet. I don't know if, you really, if this has been communicated to you, but that small child has a remarkably advanced mullet. And I find myself in the presence of all the marvels of medical science and the incredible way in which God and his body is together thinking, gee, isn't it incredible that before you even come out of the womb and have any acquaintance with Billy Ray Cyrus, you can already be equipped with such a remarkable mullet. So pathetic are my reflections on life. Uh, the back of his head was pronounced, the front was covered. But soon that little strip of plastic will come off uh, and he will not only see, but he'll do what all small infants do. I think this is some months down the track. But he'll do what all little infants do as part of their uh, normal development. He will start doing this. Now you couldn't see that, right? So I'll exaggerate it for you. It's like this. That's what they do. Uh, they've mapped the kind of uh, movement of retinas in infants, and when they consult their parents' faces, that's what they do. Same pattern every time, usually, and they're measuring, so to speak, without thinking about it, the distance from eye to eye and mouth to nose, the, the various sort of personal indices of the person looking at them, so that they can distinguish who this person is. It's quite remarkable, don't you think? It's an amazing. So, you know, Nathaniel will do this and go, that's Rach. Take in other proportions, slightly more feminine. Go, that's my father. That's Paul. <laughs> At least that's the way I see him. <laughs> yeah. The point is this. That was a comment against Paul and not against Rach. And if anyone tells that story later, I want you to point that out. Um, it seems to me that uh, it's the very beginning of a process that's fundamentally important. That is compare and contrast. You know, that's my mum. And that's slightly different. That's my dad. A thoroughly important skill uh, and a thoroughly ugly skill soon after. Uh, my kids are a little older than Nathaniel. I've discovered that the moment they can compare and contrast, it all gets ugly. Uh, and the phrase, it's so unfair, starts coming out. It's so unfair. What's unfair? As it turns out, everything. Uh, my kids can uh, assess the space that they, uh, the relative floor space that they have in our house with greater speed and precision than a real estate agent. It's so unfair. She gets, I get anything. I used to think life was unfair. I had no idea that my children showed me depths to inequality that I never knew existed. Uh, we adults, of course, do the same thing, compare and contrast all the time. Uh, we look at each other's cars and compare and contrast. I've got a Tarago, so don't look at mine or you'll feel envious. Uh, we check out each other's clothes. We check out offices, our haircuts, our accomplishments, our qualifications, our relative emotional intelligences, the length of our scarves, anything from the profound to the completely mundane. We do it. Sometimes it's completely innocent. We're just kind of noting different features of life. Sometimes the comparison and contrast takes on really serious deep proportions. And that's the case in this passage. Uh, Peter, the disciple, he learnt it as a kid and he exercised it on the pages of scripture, comparing and contrast. Uh, what had happened was the rich young man had come to Jesus and had been sent away. He wouldn't enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because he was very rich and it's very hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A terrifying thing to say 
in Kiravilia or Maroubra. Nonetheless, that's the truth. And the disciples said, who can be saved? Jesus said, look, it's impossible for man, but things are possible for God. Something about this whole incident has rankled Peter. The guy hasn't become a believer. He hasn't followed Jesus like Peter. He's gone away uh, unconsoled. Nonetheless, Peter is deeply troubled, and he says this to Jesus. Do you see it there in verse 27? Peter answered Jesus, didn't answer him. Jesus answered no question. Peter just kind of responds. He's got something to say. We have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Just the thought that this someone might miss out or, or perhaps might scrape in despite not you know, making the sacrifices he has. Just this resentment, this fear, this sort of orphaned heart opens up in Peter. He says, left everything on behalf of everyone else. He's not thinking this so much for himself. He's talking on behalf of the rest of the disciples. We've left everything to follow you. What will there be for us? It's real. It is the cry of an orphaned heart. It's so unfair, Jesus. It's so unfair. Well, that's what you need to know to hear the story of the parable Uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, because Jesus hears that from Peter and responds with this story. The story doesn't have any old occasion. It has that occasion, that cry, that issue of who will get what and why. What's fair? What's equal? What's right? What's generous? All these questions are in the air. Not in theory, but in felt anxiety and worry. Well, This is the story he tells, remember? Chapter 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. And you see the story. It's like um, it doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, Well, not where where I live anyway. It's like the docks used to be. People go down in the morning if they're unemployed and, you know, a foreman would come out and say, you, actually, not you, you, yeah, you've got more muscles. Yeah, I'll take you. I'm not... He doesn't have more muscles than you. You should feel right. I'm just, this is a hypothetical, okay? You know, you, 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 you. And then a little bit later, need more workers. Okay, you come too, too, too. That's how it works. At the end of the day, they come in the office, the foreman gets out pay packet, says, there's your denarius, there's your denarius, there's your denarius. And the guys who've been working all day go, what? We all get a denarius? That's the story. And Jesus responds uh, in verse 13, I'm not being unfair to you. Really? Uh, I'm a union man, personally. Uh, I was a teacher in the public school system, so I'm about as left-wing as a Sydney Anglican gets, uh, which is not very. Uh, In fact, when I left Moore College, I started the Sydney Anglican Clergy Union. I was horrified to discover that we didn't have a union, so I started it. And we will be a union when I can get anyone else to join me. But I think in the meantime, it's somewhat presumptuous to say... We have a union when I stand by myself. I'm not sure what we will rally around or in aid of. I think we're treated rather well. But the moment we're not, I suspect I will have friends by my side and we can sing union songs, which will be interesting. Uh, We believe that things should be fair, but in this story, they don't fear at all. We believe, you don't have to be left-wing to think that a full day's work should equal a full day's pay, but in this story, that's not the case. We believe that life should be played on basically a level playing field. But this story, 
inhabits apparently the side of the mountain. We believe everyone should have equal opportunities and this story is full of opportunities but not a lot of equality. Anyway, you look at it, it's just not fair, is it? I can see the worker's point. But here's Jesus' point, verse 13. I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I, what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. What Jesus has to teach us, it seems to me, and which I think we might find hard to understand, is that God's grace is not unfair, it's just unequal. God's grace is not unfair, it's just unequal. Um, let me show you why this is true with a very simple illustration. You kind of don't need one because you just had a story. I'll tell you one anyway. Uh, since a ch- I was a child, I've longed to visit Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. I was shocked a few years ago to discover that it's not actually real. That's disappointing. Nonetheless, imagine you can go there in your mind with me. We go into Willy Wonka's chocolate factory and I take massive bites out of the chocolatey earth in that room where the Oompa Loompas sing. I take bite after, in fact, I eat like a square kilometre of that stuff. You take just a square metre. It would be ridiculous for you to turn to me and suggest that this was unfair. Turn to Willy Wonka and say, he got a square kilometre and I only got a square metre. The point is, when you're receiving such great stuff, who cares? When you're cutting a big chocolate cake at a party, I know there's a moment where you think, oh, I'd like... But you really you push that down pretty quickly and go, I'll have, I'll have any piece. It's chocolate cake at a party, for heaven's sake. What do, I, what do I care about? I might care about the size of the mains or whatever, and, you know, really, it's just it's stupid to worry about it that when you're receiving chocolate party, chocolate cake at a party, you know. It's just quite obvious. The point is, you don't worry about how big your slice is when you're receiving generosity. And God's gift of grace is not like a little chocolate cake reverend awaits anxiously what they'll receive. It's, it's something so massive, so, so rich. In fact, this story downplays it. It's not a denarius for a day's work. It's, a, it's, it's the keys to the kingdom of heaven for doing nothing. Who can complain about that? Why is Peter resentful? Because I gave up stuff to follow you, Jesus. I left my boat. I left my family. Which, of course, reveals that for Peter, the question of the comparison between keeping a boat and a family and gaining Jesus is a real comparison. We sit here thinking, of course, you follow Jesus. It's a real comparison for him. He is not yet sure that he has gained so much in gaining Jesus that it was worth the loss of his boat and his family. Now, you might it's easy to pour scorn on that. You've got to just put yourself in his shoes for a minute. He really hasn't seen that much yet. And he's going, Left everything to follow you. Everything. It's a bit scary, isn't it? What's most scary is that Peter feels at this point less than rich in Jesus. Less than rich. And because he feels some lack, 
then compare and contrast begins and resentment follows. Well, this story reminds us, I think, that God's grace is a great gift to us in any amount. In any amount. And at any time. And it's not unfair, but it is unequal. It is unequal. Some people receive it in the last flickers of their life. Others gain it early and then labour in the Lord's service tirelessly for years. It is unequal. We learn something about God here, and that is he loves to give, he loves to grace us, and he doesn't really care so much about equity at that point. The reason is because it's not about equity, but about his generosity. It's about his generosity. And he has every right to apportion things exactly as he sees them. He's the Lord. And he's given us so much, you know, such a wonderfully rich thing that to question how much is just sort of mean-spirited and silly. It's like arguing over the size of your piece of a chocolate cake at a party. It's silly. So you see, God is gracious, not equitable. And we are not fair, just ungracious. So we've learned something about God. Now let's learn something about us. Uh, we're reminded here that even if God does not overly care about equity in his grace, we do. Now let me give you a moment to talk about equality. It comes up so much in this, this is a sidetrack, comes up so much in this passage um, and pushes so many buttons. Let's think what the scriptures is as a whole of it. Uh, generally here, the question of equality is placed you know, in a low drawer in order to talk about God's generosity. Uh, it seems to me that this and one other place in the New Testament is where equality is talked about. Now that should tell you something straight away because in our culture, equality is talked about all the time, everywhere. Right? Where is the place? It's 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, it's where the Macedonian, sorry, the Corinthian church is being called to give to the needs of the Jerusalem church during a time of, fashion, uh, of famine. Did I say fashion? I must be in the wrong city. It's Jerusalem I'm talking about. And at that point it says, your plenty will supply what they need, so in turn, their plenty will supply what you need, and then there will be equality. Now it's interesting, the equality is, equality is clearly something that God loves. That is, he loves when people have plenty, give to those who are needy. Right? He loves to see people share what they have. That's the kind of koinonia fellowship in the New Testament church, Acts 2 and 4. Right? This is something of the character of God. He's a God who loves equity. Um, he's not obsessed with it like we are. and It's not about everyone being equal in that you know, stingy sense. He just likes to see people who are neglected getting helped out. That's what equality is about for God. But when it comes to his grace, he does not care less about it. But we care very much. We care when things are unequal. It feels unfair. And here is the feeling I have about us. I suspect that we hate inequality before God less because we are fair than because we are ungracious. Um, at first this story talks about how people get unequally saved in God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is speaking about coming off the back of the rich young man. You know, if he got into the kingdom, Peter would feel gypped, but God would say, no, that's how I do it. It's about the inequality of salvation at first. But Peter's reply shifts the game a little bit. It's not about the inequality of salvation, but 
but the inequality of service. Did you see what he cried out? He said, we've left everything to follow you. What would there be for us? It's kind of a, what we've given up, what we've given to Jesus, what we've left behind for him, how we've served him. And at this point, the question of equality cuts much more deeply. I suspect we're all quite happy for God to be generous with his grace, unequal with his grace when it comes to salvation. But when it comes to service and what people give and do for Jesus, well, that's where equality really begins to hit us. Let me give you an example. The church roster. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm on crash three times this roster. Everyone else is only on twice, except for Joanna, who's not on at all, and she's had two kids go through that crash. I'm clearly inhabiting another person at this point, because I don't go on the crash roster at all. Fortunately, I'm preaching, so no one blames me. Lucky me. The crash roster at our church You want to talk about equality? That'll start the conversation. Of course, worry of a church roster is real. Can I say a word to pastors? Of course you worry about the distribution of labour, and you should. The scriptures encourage us to make sure that each part is doing its work. Why? So that the whole body might be built up. Uh, This is not about equality this is, a, this is pastoral mouse. This is about encouraging people to use what God's given them. You know, quite frankly, if you're being lazy, don't be lazy. Right? You've been given gifts from God to use for him and his people. You don't, it's, it's just a failure of obedience to Jesus to be lazy. So if you're lazy, sort it out. And if you are uh, a person who directs the affairs of the church here in some way, you're right, you shouldn't feel guilty for going, oh, gee, I'm talking about whether this is fair. And that's bad. Jesus says don't do that. No, there's a time for thinking that through for the pastoral good of the congregation. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about those moments when you just go, I'm doing, but I've done those moments. Uh, moments where you envy people who don't have to prepare a home group study this week or you envy people who do or you envy the leaders of the church or you're a leader and you envy someone that gets to just rock up and have a cup of tea in the middle of service and sing the praises of God and go home. We compare and contrast all the time. Uh, I have a theory that church rosters should be colour-coded. Some people agree with that because they like things in colour. I think it would just help everyone do what they do anyway, which is work out who's doing more and who's doing less. We could colour code it in that way and we could see. And then I'd like to institute a Martyr of the Month award, just like at McDonald's. I'm all for more cross-fertilisation between the disciplines. A Martyr of the Month. Let's work out who's doing the most. Let's stick them up on a wall. Who's doing the least? We'll stick them up on something harder. You know? It goes on. You know, it's vaguely amusing, but kind of deeply disturbing at the same time. Of course it goes on. Jesus, you know, Jesus calls very sinful, ornery, tired, overburdened people to his service. Of course it goes on. But compare and contrast like that kills fellowship. Its origin might sometimes be a right pastoral concern for each part of the body, uh, but often 
It's just from an orphaned heart that that cry comes out. A sense that I've been left alone with so much to do. I've lost so much and I'm being called to give more. No one knows or cares. I'm like an orphaned child in the church. Who's going to give attention and share concern for me? And if only we were better organised, I wouldn't be this resentful. If only the administration was better. But it can't be a matter of just organisation and equity and fairness. God's grace is poured out unequally. Your salvation is unequal. God's gifts are poured out unequally. So the ministries you serve in will be unequal. There are different needs, so you'll have unequal demands placed on you. There are different concerns, so you'll shoulder unequal weights. Some will do a lot, some will do less. And it will really stick in our throats sometimes. And sometimes it will be deeply sinful that some do so much. Sometimes it will be deeply sinful that some do so little. But sometimes it will just be the unequal nature of grace and service. And we forget this story that Jesus so helpfully told us if we think that unequal is unfair. All right, let me finish by trying to unlearn the early learned habit of compare and contrast. Uh, Three words for you. Bitterness, burnout and forgetfulness. First thing is bitterness. Don't be bitter. Don't be bitter when you see that some people's Christian life demands less sacrifice than yours. Don't be bitter about that. You really hear Peter's cry, don't you? He, he sees that that young rich man might have just scraped into the kingdom. And he just thinks, why? How could that be? We who left everything. Don't be bitter about what you might be called to leave behind. Jesus really wants you to put him first in your life. It might mean really big sacrifices. Some of you, I'm sure, have made really big sacrifices already. Don't be bitter if people are called to easier ones. All sacrifice is hard, but you're a fool if you think it's all the same. Stop comparing yourself to others. Are you unhappy to give things up for Jesus? If you're unhappy, don't give them up. Keep those things and lose Jesus. Don't be bitter when you receive unequal attention and appreciation. Uh, we have a series of cards at the back of our church. Someone's sick, someone's having a birthday, someone's had a baby, whatever. You know, people are constantly signing their name and saying much love and sending them off. I dread the day when we forget someone. I guarantee you I'll know the day when we forget someone. I'll hear about it. Why? Because we all have that orphaned heart in us that when, when a word that goes out to appreciate all of them and it doesn't land on us, think, but don't they know? Don't they know that I am sick? There's no one caring for me. 
Does that, do people not realise what I've done? More unequal treatment from my church, which I love and I know it loves me, but it, it hurts. Every church is a church full of people who received too little appreciation when they were young. Even your best parents don't say enough encouraging things. I, I'm a parent. I love my kids. I treat them like dirt. I can't believe it. It's a mysterious law of nature. It's horrible. You know, my son's playing trumpet last night in the youth group band. I said to him, oh, Ethan, you just need to work out how many flats you're going to play. What a snide and terrible thing to say. Oh, I could hear it coming out. I could see it in my mind before I said it. I thought, don't say that. I saw it coming out of my mouth. I said, don't say it. It was said and I thought, now I feel guilty about it. I'm going to have to apologise to him about it. It's unbelievable. So we all lack appreciation. We all have that in common. Our little orphan hearts cry out, don't be bitter when you're not appreciated. After all, you've been called into the service of the Lord Jesus. You weren't paid a denarius for a day's labour. You were given the keys to the kingdom of heaven when you'd done nothing. You've got to remember that. Burnout. Bitterness is one thing. Long-term bitterness leads to burnout. Uh, and a time of sustained bitterness, either over salvation issues or matters of service, can lead to burnout. Uh, I don't know how to describe burnout. I'm not a psychologist, but I've read enough books on it because I'm a clergy person. And apparently... Um, something like 57% of Sydney Anglican ministers are you know, flirting with burnout. Um, I'm in those 57%. I know that because I remember one night. I remember one night when all the problems of the world seemed on me and it seemed like I had to bear them all. And I remember genuinely physically, I'm sure some of you had this experience, it, things, the world went to a little circle like that. It wasn't the world, just whatever I was seeing. There was blackness around. Just this feeling of, felt like the thing I could see and the light just got smaller and smaller. It's quite a weird physiological stress reaction. You had stress reactions like that? You might have had various other ones. You might have you know, found yourself feeling one foot tall or I don't know what. I remember a guy who uh, uh, had a serious breakdown. He was a big biker when I worked in the western suburbs and um, he was renovating his house and the debts were piling up and he had a lot of kids and it was all a disaster. And his wife found him one night um, out in the renovation, in the, in the extension, they had a, a carpet down there for the kids to play on while he worked out there. One of those carpets with a road and buildings. And, and he was out there with a hammer, hammering the carpet. Just all these little buildings on this little toy village, you know. So I said, what are you doing? He said, I've got to get it finished. <laughs> right? You, you've had those stress responses. You know you, know you can get there. Um, the recipe for burnout is things like being driven instead of having purpose. Um, uh, they say it's doing instead of doing and being. I appreciated the video at the front of tonight. Uh, it's when you're um, a redeemer instead of the redeemed, when you're the Messiah instead of following a Messiah. You know, the, you know the road to burnout. It's bad. Of course, what happens at the end of burnout when you're serving is people say, just stop, stop, which is great. You need time to rest. You need time to rethink. You've got to work it out. But rest is not the answer. What's the answer to burnout? Well, the answer to burnout in the service of Jesus is to sink deeper into the doctrine of God's grace. You've got something wrong. You've got something wrong. It's certainly not 
more equitable service around the place. It's not fixing the administration systems. It's not just getting yourself off the roster. It's not, you know, tiny remedial uh, responses might be helpful, but the only answer is sinking deeper into the doctrine of God's grace. What part of it? Well, Jesus points us to one part of it to finish. He points out one great response, one, one element of the doctrine of grace, which he answers Peter's little orphaned heart with here, all his hunger for appreciation, all his tired labour, all his striving to just stand equitably next to others. And he answers it with one teaching. Have a look at it in chapter 19, verse 28. Peter's just said, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? You know what Jesus says? More than you could ever imagine, you poor fool. Listen, I tell you the truth. At the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields or boats, Peter, for my sake, will inherit, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be.